Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Glad you're here today. Um, my name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor. And today we're wrapping up a series that we began a couple weeks ago, well, the beginning of this month, called Raising Losers. And uh, this has been a fun series because we've kind of pressed into this simple question of what does it take to foster and to build resiliency? What does it look like to, to build, to influence, not just in our kids' lives and our lives, but those around us, to foster that type of, I'm going to still go, yes, I can, keep moving forward. Because we live in a culture right now where everybody gets a trophy and a medal. And what happens with that is that we're really, get, we're really gotten good at winning, but a lot of us have missed the valuable lessons that losing brings. And so this series has really been a process we've been walking through, looking at how do you lose well. And last week, we kind of culminated that journey with sometimes you win and sometimes you learn and pressing into a mindset that's at the heart of fostering resiliency. And so if you're new here today or you're new to Encounter Church, Jason referenced the app earlier. You can go back and you can listen to all the messages prior to that. Today is going to be a little different. Um, Today I want to kind of press into a deeper question that's embedded inside of this series. And um, more where so much of the series has been around practical, today I just want it to be simply profound. I'm going to create more tension than I'm going to resolve. I'm going to cause more questions than I'm going to answer. And I don't do that all the time, but sometimes I think it's worth doing. Um, In our household, um, I didn't grow up this way, but in our household, we're big gamers. Uh, We have game boards everywhere. We play games constantly. I'm very familiar with the sand hourglass and how it works. And I've learned to train myself down to that last kernel and how to argue whether or not I still had a second and whether it was really safe or not safe, and maybe you grew up in a household like that, and this is just part of your culture. Maybe you're in a household like this now, but this is a part of our family rhythm. Um, A lot of times after dinner, we're sitting there, and we've kind of walked through. Everybody's talked about their day, and they've shared their little highs and lows and everything in between, and uh, I've, you know, fished out the boys that have shown way too much attention to my daughter, and taking note of their name so that we can have conversations later about them. And after that, what eventually comes up is like, hey, do you want to play a game? And uh, we have an entire um, kind of cabinet dedicated to games. And to give you an idea of how committed, how family-oriented this game culture is, um, actually, our family is so hardcore about games that my wife and daughter actually make their own. Like, they will take a cardboard and they will tape over it, and they'll create their own game, and they'll go rob a piece and, you know, it'll, from another game board, and it becomes kind of assimilated into this new game that they've created. They've created two or three. It's usually around once a year. I don't know if there's some beta testing, some research and development that happens behind the scenes, but I think the reason they do this is you need to know I live in a competitive household. People like to win in the household, and I'm not talking about me, okay? Like, I've got people who love to win and they hate to lose. And so I have a theory why they create games. I think they create games because when you create the games, you also create the rules for the game and you define how you win the game. And so my theory is that they produce these board games and then get me to play it because they want me to lose. Because they really, really, really like winning a lot. And uh, and so... What plays out oftentimes when I sit down and there's this new discussion around games is I'm usually like, okay, how do you play this thing? And then the next question, which is a question that we all understand, um, how do you win? Right? We all want to know that. I'm like, okay, well, this game that you've invented, how do I win in this game? 
because I know the odds are stacked against me and what you've created for me. And, uh, and what I want to do today is I want to press into that question, not so much about this board game, but about the game of life. I want us to look at a conversation that takes place about 2,000 years ago, but out of that conversation is, is tension around the same question around playing this game, because we talk about losing. It's good to talk about winning, too. And uh, what we find, what Jason referenced earlier is that we've created an app um, that there was this conversation around life and winning and losing isn't something that we've just recently discovered. It's not a, a causey household conversation. This is a human conversation. This is something that we all hunger for and that we all long for. And in the midst of the Bible, there's a certain conversation I want us to look at this morning. Jason referenced the app because one of the things that we do for you um, is we preload the passage that we're going to be kind of, un, kind of digesting, pack, unpacking through the course of the day in the app for you. It's free. It's easy. The Bible can be a very intimidating book for a lot of people. It's one of the reasons we created the 112 course, which is our spiritual development course, is because for many of us, the Bible is this 2,000-plus page terrifying book that spans human history with words and images and book names that we're not even sure about. And so that was one of the reasons when we created the app that we wanted to do this. So we could just say, okay, let's get comfortable with this passage and let's look at what it says. Because in the midst of Mark chapter 8 is a conversation that's not too far off from what happens around my dinner table uh, when a new game is brought to the table. Mark chapter 8, just to set the backdrop, because it's helpful to understand why Mark was written. Every book in the Bible was written for a reason. It was written in a distinct season. There was a context that was playing out around it. And so Mark is written by an individual named Mark. That's why it's called the Gospel of Mark. Mark is an influencer in the early church. He's really more of a connector more than anything. He's got connections to a lot of the movers and shakers in the early church. And one of those individuals... Um, one of his job assignments is that he's essentially a secretary um, for Peter, the disciple. Peter's one of Jesus' most famous um, disciples, apostles, followers. And Mark gets a job essentially interning and dictating Peter's notes. And in the midst of Christianity unfolding, one of the things that happens is Jesus is resurrected, the church starts to grow, the message is spreading. It's not just spreading um, geographically in that immediate region. It's actually starting to spill out into the whole Roman Empire, which is the ruling kind of empire at the time. It makes its way all the way to Rome, which is the most powerful city in the world, a significantly large, influential place, and a church is starting to grow there. And then over the course of a couple decades, what happens is this message that has been spreading, this power that's moving starts to face pressure, specifically persecution. And these people who had heard about Jesus, whose lives had been transformed by Jesus, were now starting to deal with the pressure and tension that came from following Jesus. They found themselves in a place of losing. They were losing their jobs because of their faith. They were losing their reputation because of their faith. Some of them were losing their property. Some were losing their ability to even make a livelihood for their loved ones. Some were losing their loved ones, and many of them ended up losing their life. And you can kind of, you don't have to be a historian or to have a time machine to kind of step in real quick and realize that that's a lot of pressure. It would be like discovering that, turns out being a Boston Red Sox fan meant that Dodgers had an open 
kind of season to come and hunt you down because they were bitter about last night. I mean, it just kind of plays out where, like, we, if you were hated for what you loved, what you believed in, and you could lose everything, one of the natural things that starts to happen is you start to question whether or not it's worth it. And this is where these people were. Is this really worth it? And so Mark is written to a group of people who are going through that. And Peter says, hey, I want to take them. I want to remind them. I want to tell them about my journey with this man named Jesus that I met one day. And specifically, he talks about a dialogue. He was like, I understand what it's like to be in a place where you feel like you're losing. And you're not even sure what winning is anymore. And so he makes sure that Mark puts this part in. He tells them this story around this brief conversation found in Mark 8, just 10 verses, that really is a profound conversation. It's maybe a conversation you've heard before, but chances are you haven't camped in it the way Peter intended it to be done in a way that would have spoken to the people when they read it the first time from Mark. In verse 27, it says, Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. See, what's happening is Jesus' momentum is starting to grow. His message is starting to spread. He's this miracle worker. He's transforming lives, and people are starting to talk about him. There's not Twitter or Facebook, but people still talk and people are still spreading. And what's happening is all around the region, everyone's hearing about Jesus. And because the Jewish people, if, you, if you've been here before, you've heard me talk about that the Jewish people had two, mary, two primary promises of focus in the Old Testament. There was a focus on the promised land and there was a focus on the promised one. The promised land had already been determined. They were living in it. We call that place Israel today. But the promised one was still unfulfilled. And so there was a fixation, especially historically in this time period, in the first century, um, where because of the Roman rule and the Roman oppression, there was a huge amount of fervor. There was obsession. There was a fixation in the Jewish community around God's promised one. Who is it? When's he coming? What's he going to be like? That was a constant conversation amongst people. That's not necessarily what we talk about every day, but this is what they were talking about. This is why Jesus asked the question, who do people think I am? And what bubbles up is some superstition. John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was dead. They were thinking that maybe John the Baptist came back to life because God was doing something. Or Elijah. Elijah was a prophet even further back that maybe God had brought Elijah back and that Elijah is teaching and preaching and telling people because that's what he's going to do before the end of the world, before the, the promised one shows up. And so Jesus is kind of starting to pull on this thread that is existing in the culture and he's kind of tugging gently at it. And he says, who do people say I am? Well, Jesus, there's all kinds of debate about who you are. We know you're special. We just don't know. And then Jesus says, okay, this is what everyone else is saying. Who do you think I am? Which is a really important question. I love that Jesus doesn't just allow us to to process what other people think about him. He asks us specifically, what do you think about me? Who do you think I am? And Peter responds with the Golden Apple Award, you're the Messiah. And Jesus, instead of saying, good job, Peter, great job, high five, because you're the star student of the day, he says, don't tell anyone that. 
if you're right. And then, immediately, in verse 31, it says, He then began to teach them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and three days later rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, what's interesting is that you have to understand the context. There's an obsession in the culture, like I said, around this idea of Messiah, the promised one. And the promised one had a lot of different titles. One of the titles was the Messiah. Another one of the titles for the promised one was Son of Man. It came from an ancient prophecy in the book of Daniel. And the Son of Man was just another way of saying it. And what ends up happening is that Jesus hears Peter's response and then immediately launches into a discussion around who and what the Messiah and the Son of Man really is. You see, in the, in the time, what is kind of in the minds of people and Peter himself is that the Messiah is going to be like a religiously devout Jack Bauer or Jason Bourne. He's going to come in. He's going to kick the door down. He's going to pull out the sword. He's going to take out the Roman rulers in the empire. He's going to crush it, kill it, and they're going to take over. He's going to look like Tom Brady. He's going to manage his sword the way the Red Sox manage a bat. I mean, like, you can just kind of, they've got all this dumped inside. Like, he is the hero of Hebrews. He is the conquering king. He is this guy whose hair blows in the wind in slow motion. Like, he is that man. Like, they think the Messiah is awesome. I mean, like, I'm pulling things from our culture, but it still does not capture the way they viewed that Messiah. But notice what Jesus says. He says that the Son of Man, another way of saying Messiah, instead of coming butt and kicking, kicking butts and taking names, he comes in and it says that he's going to suffer many things. Instead of being accepted and celebrated by the leaders, he's going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. The exact opposite of what they think. And then instead of killing, instead of conquering, he's going to be killed. And then three days later, whatever this means, he's going to rise again. And it is such an affront to what people think winning looks like that Peter, fresh off of his star student award, says, Jesus, come here. I need to talk to you, Jesus. Jesus, I know you're Jesus. But you need to simmer down with this son of man thing. Like, I don't know if you watched your social media followers, but you lost a lot of followers today, Jesus. Like, you didn't get a lot of likes. You got a lot of O faces, but you didn't get a lot of smiles. Like, Jesus, are you sure this is the best plan? Are you sure this is what you should be doing, Jesus? This sounds like a horrible idea, Jesus. He rebukes Jesus. He's feeling good. He knows he's the Messiah. And then what happens? Verse 33, but when Jesus turning looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, okay, Peter, let's talk. He says, get behind me, Satan. Let's just dwell on that. When's the last time you told somebody to get behind you, Satan? Okay? It, it wasn't a, I disagree with you, Peter. Peter, are we sure? Let's agree on some common terms. You know, let's, let's work to negotiate our disagreements. He says, Get behind me, Satan. Which is strong. And the reason he says it, he keeps on going. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He completely, 
completely reorients the way Peter thinks about the Messiah. He says, Peter, you've stepped into this game and you have a definition of winning and it is completely wrong. You've missed it completely. And the only way I can capture how completely is that I'm going to refer to you under the title Satan, not just the personification, but in this moment, the word Satan, actually, because there is the idea of Satan, there's the person of Satan who is the enemy, but the idea of Satan, the concept is the accuser. It's, it's the liar. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You are trafficking in a completely wrong frame, Peter. And this, you are so in contrast with what God wants to do in and through me that you are Satan in this moment, which is a really strong thing. As he says, look, God's concerns, human concerns, and right now you're missing it. And then he continues. He says, um, he keeps kind of unpacking what he's talking through, and he moves on, and he says, then he called the crowd to him along the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple and disciples follower must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit the soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is pretty stark. Jesus says in this moment, like, okay, I'm going to press in. Peter, you, you feel pretty good about what you think, and you're wrong. And then he takes the, not just the idea of Messiah and he reorients it. He takes the idea of followers and disciples and reorients that too. Jesus doesn't just say, who do you think I am? He tells them who they should be too. And underneath this, I think, is one of the most profound, powerful, and terrifying principles around this idea of raising losers. It's, I think, life-altering. It changed Peter's life, and it changed my life too. What Jesus does is Jesus clarifies something that Peter had confusion in. When Jesus responds to the disciples and tells them, what, is, what good is it to gain the world to loot but lose your soul? He's making the point to Peter, to the disciples, and to us that there is something worse than losing. It's when you win at the wrong game. That losing isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. It's when you win at the wrong game. And that's what Peter's in danger of doing. You're the Messiah. You're, you're Jack Bauer. No, what, you're suffering servant? You're going to die for us? And wait, wait, this is... You've just changed the whole rules of the game, Jesus. And it's because Jesus understood that what's worse than losing is when we win in the wrong game. When I was growing up, uh, we would drive by on, on the way to a convenience store, this house, and it was a, one of those houses, if you're one of these people, no offense, um, but it was one of those houses where the people kind of had a, a farm, but they didn't have a farm. They, they didn't have fences, and so it was just like random animals would be in their front yard. And so we would drive by this house on the way to the convenience store. And no joke, every time we drove by, I'd sit in the back seat and I'd watch this play out. Chickens and dogs would chase our car. 
And it was the strangest thing to me. I would look out the window and there was chickens and there were dogs chasing our cars. <laughs> Happened every single time we rode by. And I was just like, this is so strange. Mom, is this not strange? Why are they doing this? I don't know, son. It's just crazy. But there was like this deeper question that always haunted me. I was like, what do they do when they catch the car? Like, that was an even more important question. What does the dog and the chicken do when they actually catch up with the car? It doesn't end well for them. Why are they chasing a car? Why are they playing a game that in the end they lose when they win? And yet, about 15 years later, I'm in college, and I'm the first one in my family to graduate high school. I'm the first one in my family to, to go into college. And my undergrad is essentially biochem. And this is a big deal because I'm going to be like a medical doctor in our family. And that's like a really big deal because we have more people who've gone through jail and been treated in emergency rooms because of dumb things they did. We don't have doctors in our family. We have people who are disasters in our family. And so my mom's super proud because she's like, my son graduated high school and he's going to do awesome. And so I get into college and I had never been around an environment like that. I wasn't really popular growing up. I was husky, which is a whole separate thing for my counselor to work through. Like why they called chubby kids husky makes no sense for me. Why they give chubby kids a designated section in a store called husky is even more beyond me. I'm like, hey, that's a great way to build self-confidence in today's youth. Let's, let's call out the fact and create a name around their their largeness and let's put them in a special section of the store so they can gather around one another as they shop with their pants wider than they are longer, right? And, and so like, I, I, I was like a nerd kid. I watched 2020 and I think I said that last week. I read weird books that no one else read. I'm like seventh grade and I'm reading like Fahrenheit 451, 1984, Animal Farm. Like I'm loving that kind of stuff. And I'm pretty sure people are like, he's that weird kid. And then I get to college, and I realize that college is actually filled with a bunch of weird kids. But when you're a bunch of weird kids together, now you're a cool kid. And so I end up helping to start a fraternity, and a guy who could not get a girl to talk to him and was picked on by the guys is now the life of the party. We are a really kind of large, growing fraternity. It becomes a big deal. I, I get a, a job uh, working as a lab assistant with an organic chemistry professor, which is that, that if you're going to go to med school, that was the next step because he's the guy you want to get. He was a genius. He graduated college when he was 18 years old, right? By 22, he was already a doctor. Like, he's the one who you want to write your recommendations. So everything was going well. And then summer comes. And I find my, myself in that summer, I um, was kind of, going further and further down substances and alcohol, drugs, and, you know, just that, like, party scene. Um, I remember distinctly in July of 2001 hitting this point where it was this really kind of scary place. I remember getting to the top because my little mountain, what I thought was a win, was pretty small. And when I finally got to the top of it and I looked around, I was like, this isn't worth it. I remember thinking as a 21-year-old, if this is all life has to offer, then I don't want to live it. It wasn't like some dark depression. It wasn't me trapped in some emotional void. It was this rational conclusion I reached by looking at life and all life had to offer. I was like, I don't know if I want to spend the next 50, 60 years of my life 
running up taller mountains only to get to the top and to feel empty. I would wake up the next morning after the parties, and it was like a colander. It didn't matter how much I poured in, what I poured in, who I poured in with. I always woke up the next morning or two feeling empty. Something was missing. I had become the dog that I used to laugh at. I finally caught the car, and I didn't like what I got. And I think what I experienced that day was this tragedy of winning in the wrong game. And Jesus recognized that if we're not careful, that that can happen too. And that defining moment for me of realizing I was no different than the dogs and the chickens I used to laugh at. I had spent and my energy, my time chasing something that when I finally got to the top to look out, the view wasn't worth it. It was like climbing a mountain only to realize you get to the top and it's a landfill. And you look around and you're like, this stinks. This isn't even worth it. And I think Peter is pressing in. Jesus is pushing back. And what happens in this moment is Jesus says to all the people around him, you look at me and what I've just said and you call it losing. But my fear when I look at you is that you're trying to win at the wrong game. And that, that doesn't have to be 2,000 years ago. I have those kind of conversations quite regularly with people. It's the people who never stop to ponder and consider because the beauty of this moment is at least Jesus gets them to stop and to think what winning and losing really is. Many of us don't even get to that place. Many of us have taken the dream or taken the definition of winning from our parents and we run on treadmills, we waste ourselves, we neglect our families, we chase after things convinced that those things are going to make us happy, that if I get the next house, if I get that next toy, if I get that next car, if I get that next promotion, if I get those shoes, if I get that suit, if I get that award, if I get their approval, and we just run and we chase and we kill ourselves in the pursuit of a game that we've never even stopped to consider, is it worth playing in the first place? We have a pattern, if we stop and look back, of doing the same thing over and over and over again, and we always get the same results, but we always go into those things expecting different ones. And it's because we're trying to win at the wrong game. And when you win at the wrong game, you get to the place I got to, and it's empty. You get handed a trophy you never wanted in the first place. And the tragedy is that you've lost the most valuable thing you have in life, time. And that Jesus is wanting to push us to imagine that what if there's a, a game that's worth winning in? And what if you're not in the game you should be playing? I was having a dinner a couple years ago with a really kind of powerful, by very rudimentary standards, uh, he would have been considered very successful. And I remember him unpacking his story. And he was telling me about a journey that happened early in his life where he was moving up a corporate ladder very quickly and accidentally got assigned to do this side project on behalf of the business and fell in love with it. 
But the challenge was is that it made a fraction of what he was making at the time. I remember him unpacking. He was like one of the most defining moments of my life. I was already pacing for that position that would have given me the power, that would have given me the money, that would have given me the influence. And then I'm over here moonlighting on a side project of a job and realizing that this thing that makes a fraction of what I was making was the thing I really loved. It was the thing I was really good at. He said, the best thing that ever happened to me was my boss noticed it and brought me in and he said, hey, I want to tell you a story. What you see playing out right now is something I saw play out in me 30 years ago. But I made the wrong choice. I chose the money. I chose the ladder. And while you can't see it today, I have golden handcuffs on me and I can't walk away. Don't make the same mistake I'm making. I talk to individuals who are in jobs because their parents told them to do that job. Being successful means you go to that school, that, get that degree, have that title. That's what success is. Success is that kind of house and that kind of town with that kind of car and those kind of vacations. And then they get there and they're miserable. I mean, I, and the challenges, I think when we talk about raising losers, is that Peter parrots and repeats what he had been told his entire life, what a Messiah was. Because if you're not careful, if you never stop and ponder, am I winning at the right game, you pass on your scorecard to your children and those around you. We all have the best intentions. But what happens is we, if we don't pause, we don't reflect, then we push our scorecard down to the next generation. And they do it too. And I have friends who work with um, private elite schools. And the thing that I've noticed in different conversations with them and that I've seen kind of documented in other arenas is that this generation currently coming up is simultaneously the most educated and medicated generation in human history. They live under pressure and anxiety and stress because they've been pushed to scorecards and handed rules of a game that we, let's be honest, some of us don't even like winning in. And the reason I know is because I get to have these conversations. And what does our lives look like? We go home and we drink to numb the pain that we feel. We take pills to cover up that something inside of us that says there's got to be more. But we're afraid of what that more is, so we have to suppress it because if we pay too much attention to that, we might go step out and do something stupid. And so we keep running on the treadmill. We keep spending our lives out exhausted. We keep pushing. And I love that Jesus pressed into hard places because maybe you're winning right now in the right game. But unless you stop and ponder, you don't know. And even more devastatingly so, you push it onto your kids who will push it onto their kids. And I believe that what is happening around us culturally, why we are so addicted from everything from screens to substances, is that so many are spending their lives trying to win in a game that they're not even sure when they get to the end they want to win in. And that Jesus calls us and invites us, as we see in this passage, into a different game. He recognizes that if you're not careful, whether you're a teenager or whether you're an adult, you're when you play a game, when you're trying to win in the wrong one, the goalposts always shift. 
this is cool this season, but then those shoes, that vacation spot's cool the next. And so you were winning here, but now you're not winning anymore because this is what winning looks like now. Then your neighbor gets a new car, and it's a Tesla, and it's really nice, and now that's winning. Right? I watched this play out with my six-year-old. She's like, commercials make me want stuff. I'm like, yes. <laughs> that's exactly what they're intended to do. They make you feel like your life is deficient unless you have it. That's how they build this thing. And there's money to be made in that market, in that game. And my six-year-old could see it. And Jesus is saying, I want to invite you into a different game. He said, my game's a little bit more painful. He's like, if you want to follow me, you have to follow me, take up my cross, and come after me. What you will gain is, you may not gain the world, but you gain your soul. It's like the scorecard looks different in what I'm inviting you into. Remember how I told you my wife created, and my daughter, they create their own game boards? The reality is, is that when you create your own game board, when you create it, you also create the rules and you also create how to win. God created a game called life for us to play. He defined the rules. He defined what a win looks like. And this is what Jesus is doing in this conversation. He's saying to them, I want to invite you into the game I created you to play, a game that gives you the peace, that gives you the joy, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, a one that values the who's in your life, not so much getting caught up in the what's of life, uh, one that sees that the most important things that we have are the some ones, not the some things. That all those other things, when it's all said and done in our life, is like this and it finally goes away and the hourglass is finished, that what we stand holding is actually worth holding on to. I'm watching someone in slow motion in my life that I love deeply. And I'm watching them ignore the most important people in their life. And they're neglecting the people. And I know how this thing plays out. I'm watching it slow motion. I'm watching in our family the pain that we feel because of it. And I know in 30 years when he's taking his last breath, he's not going to care about his car. He's not going to care about his golf game. He's not going to care about his condo or the beach friends and all the you know, life that he's trying to build. What's going to hit him in that final moment is the fact that his children and his grandchildren don't even know who he is. Because I've been in enough room with enough people dying to know that people don't ask to see pictures of their stuff. They want to see the faces of those someones. This is why Jesus is constantly pushing. Stuff's not bad. He's not saying you shouldn't pursue stuff, you shouldn't have stuff, you shouldn't be wealthy. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that life should have stuff. Your stuff shouldn't be your life. He's pushing to a deeper play. He's, he's like the temporal should not overcrowd and push out the eternal. Because when you have a different scorecard, when you see that your life is meant to do this, you play the game differently. And so maybe some of you are wondering, how do I play the game? Well, one is you've got to get on the right game board. You have to recognize the game that you're playing is the wrong one. It's an empty one. And that no matter how much or how big or how awesome the prizes are, at the end of the day, the game that you're playing gets put back in the box. And it gets packed up. 
all the stuff you collected, all the titles, the degrees that you have, goes back in the box. It's done. The first thing is to recognize my life is not to be spent in pursuit of that, although those aren't bad things. Those shouldn't just be my life's pursuits. And then he adds, not just making sure you're on the right game board, it's you start to play by those rules, realizing that God created those rules, those guidelines to lead us. They start to reorient our values and our priorities. Like I already said, we start to value the who's over the what's. We start to understand the eternal in light of the temporal. We stop defining ourselves and comparing ourselves by all the other things that we see around us and all the views and all the likes and all the stuff and all the things and all the prominence they have. And we start to focus and fix. What does he say? On him. He says, follow me. Follow where I want to lead you. And what I call a win in life. Chase after me. And this is one of those things that was so terrifying for me. I remember hitting this after I became a Christian that I actually sat down and wrote a definition of what success was. For me, and this is just my definition, it doesn't have to be yours. This is why this is, I think, a very important thing. As I wrote down two things for me. One, that I would view success by those who know me the best, loving and respecting me the most. Because my job oftentimes puts me in stages in front of people. And it's really easy to make you respect me. But I would rather be known for what I am like off stage than what I can do on stage. And so I wrote down, before I ever stood on a stage of thousands of people, I wrote down the statement that those who know me the best will love and respect me the, re the, the most. When I get to the end of my life, if that's not true about me, then I did not win. I don't care how many tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people that I ever speak to that that will be my win. And then the second one was a little bit more spiritual. And it was that when I stand before, I said, so the, the whole line about those know me, respect me the best. And then I said, and that when I stand before the one to whom I serve and to whom I am his son, that I would hear, hear well done, good and faithful servant that I will have lived my life understanding that He gave me everything and that I would do like what I get to see play out in slow motion in my own life with my little girl is that she, she doesn't own anything, right? She, the girl didn't buy anything. She goes to her room sometimes and she gets her papers and like she'll spend 30 minutes in there and we don't even know what she's doing. She's like, give me alone time. I want alone time. You're like, okay, that's supposed to be when you're 16. And then she'll come out and she'll present us with something. And it's something that she's made and it'll be like, daddy, I love you. And it's like a mermaid, but not really. And it's like a star, but not really. And there's things glued and stuff taped and things cut out. And she presents to me everything that we gave to her. And she does it in such a way that reflects who she is. And she says, I love you, Daddy. And I receive that. I think the same way God longs to look at our lives too. Where what He's given us everything. The breath in our lungs, the gifts that we have, the abilities that we have, the time span. He gave us all of that. I know some of you are really smart. But he gave you your brain. Some of you are good looking. He gave you that too. Like, he gave us everything. 
And that I think a life well lived is taking those things He's entrusted to us and bringing them back to Him. And that He looks at them probably the way I look at what my little girl produces, understanding it was the best that she could do with what I gave her. And I believe in that moment, that's when you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what winning looks like. It looks like playing the right game with the right rules in the right way, knowing at the end of the day that everything goes back in the box. And so we value value the things that really are worth doing. For me, on August 7, 2001, the, the light bulb finally clicked. I started realizing it was a whole new game to play. And that day, I remember hearing what Jesus talks about where he says, those who lose their life on the sake of the gospel, he uses that word, the gospel. And the gospel, essentially, it comes from this kind of etymology of tracing back. It essentially means good news. And the good news is that where we were broken, where we were distant, where our relationship had been separated, right? When I watch Ella and she breaks a rule, I can see it. I don't tell her, hey, our relationship's been damaged, but she feels distant from me, right? If you've ever had conflict with someone, you can be in the same room, but you feel so far away from them. You feel distant. And it's because when there's a break in the relationship, proximity does not matter. There has to be reconciliation. There has to be some redemptive thing done to reform that relationship. And that points us to the fact that God had created us to have that relationship, to play that board game, and that we, all of us, in our own ways, kind of took off to our own game board selfishly, convinced that we knew what was right, that we knew how to win. Right? I didn't have to teach Ella when she was a toddler that she knew she was right. I didn't have to teach that. Why? Because there's something inside of us that does not matter what the authority says. It doesn't matter what people who love us say. We know what's right and they're all wrong. And that's not a toddler thing. That's a human thing. The ancients, they called that sin and it was in a song before. But that's what sin is. It's just the selfishness towards others. It's the self-consumedness. It's a, it would never be this bold, but it essentially says, God, I know you have your thing, but you stay over there because I know what I'm doing over here. This is my life. And we reject the rules, we reject the game board, and we start to play out our own. And in the end, we may even win at a losing game. And that Jesus steps into earth and that He patiently lives out His life. When He says, take up the cross, He's pointing to the deeper reality of that I have made a way for you to have life. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a faith choice. Faith in the sense that while many of us hear the word faith and we think it's a religious thing, faith is a life thing. When you stood at the altar and you said, I do, that was a faith I do. You didn't know what they were going to look like. You didn't know what they were going to be like 10, 15 years from now. You made that choice in faith. Faith is when you swipe your card, right? That there's this interaction. The bank has a certain amount of faith and you have a certain amount of faith in your bank that they're going to come through on that swipe. Because you've, you've trusted them. You've put your money there. And you have faith that when you swipe it, that they're going to uphold the end of their deal. Faith is a human thing. Faith is what we play in the game where we think we're winning. And we're chasing after it. And then it's a choice. My daughter's not a Christian right now. Because I think being a Christian, when I look at the New Testament, 
Christianity, Christ, being a Christian is not something that's something that I choose for her. It's something she chooses for herself. Faith is a personal decision. It's a personal faith decision that says, I'm tired of playing my own game. And I want to start playing God's game. It's a recognition that winning in a losing game is still losing. God, I want to step into yours and play your game the way you intended it to play. I'm sorry for how I've lived, but I'm choosing you. And while I would love for Ella to be a Christian, it would make me feel a lot better if I could choose it for her. The reality is, is that she has to make that choice just like I made that choice. Just like you would have to make that choice too. You may have grew up in a great home. You may have learned some of God's rules, but unless you've made that choice to get into his game board, you're still playing your own game. That's where Jesus ultimately in that moment presses in, pushes in, and throws everything into chaos by saying, hey, you have a religious notion, but it's wrong. This is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to win at the game I've created you to play. And the beauty at the end is the reason Peter writes this, tells Mark to write this to a group of people suffering, is that when you know that there's more to life than just life, you start to change how you live. You start to make decisions differently. When I run, which I do not look like a runner, when I run, everything I tell myself is future Chris will be happy because present Chris is in pain. Future Chris will be happy because present Chris is in pain. And I will say that over and over and over. I have not met future Chris yet who says, thank you, present Chris. But I tell myself that because when I recognize that there is something more out there, it changes how I live in this moment. And Jesus is saying to these people in the midst of persecution, it's worth it in the end because there's more to just life than what you're experiencing in the right now. I am worth the sacrifice. I am worth the pain. I am worth the suffering. I am worth every choice you make in light of eternity. Temporary. Temporary always passes away in light of the eternity. And that's why Jesus presses this definition. And that's why before we wrap up the series, I thought I'd at least leave you with this profound thought. That there's something worse than losing. And it's winning at the wrong game. Let's pray.